says, We the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. Now, the, uh, the Constitution of our country uh, is, has uh, been set forth, and it defines a framework for law and order in our nation. And it's a law and order to ensure welfare and fair treatment as far as the government is concerned. And so that's why we appreciate that. But Christians have a very similar document that talks about spiritual welfare and things of that nature. Of course, that's the Bible, and particularly the New Testament for those who live in the Christian age, which is us. And it is also known as the doctrine of Christ, Second John 9. Now, the most famous of all sermons is recorded for us in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. Now, the Sermon on the Mount has also been uh, called the Christian's Constitution, and I think that's a fair assessment. And like any other Constitution or any other document that sets forth principles, the Sermon on the Mount or the Christian's Constitution also has a preamble. Now, we have called that the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes set forth certain principles. It is not enough to be able to give the right answers to all the right questions when it comes to our spiritual well-being. It's not enough to be able to quote verse after verse after verse. In this preamble, Jesus has set forth some principles And those principles govern the entrance into the kingdom. It governs the uh, behavior or regulates the conduct in the kingdom. And it emphasizes one's influence in the kingdom. And when we look at these principles, we can learn a whole lot from that. And so as he taught these necessary principles on how to become a part of the kingdom, he first addressed inner qualities, things that, We need to have, the inner man needs to have, things that we need to learn to make and be a characteristic that each of us carry. And the first quality he mentioned is the poor in spirit. Now, when we look at the the phrase, the poor in spirit, we need to understand what exactly does that mean? Well, this word poor means to uh, uh, be or to be in abject poverty. Now, what the Greek philosophers of Jesus' day would teach people was that you need to learn about yourself. You need to find out what makes you happy in this world, and that's what you need to pursue. But Jesus taught that people were to empty themselves of worldliness, right? That doesn't mean we can't have things. We can't have money. We have to be in abject poverty, physically speaking. That's not what he was talking about. We have to be able to... Uh, make a living and provide for ourselves. We're ordered and commanded to work so that we can provide for ourselves and those who are less fortunate. And so uh, what Jesus intended was for us not to be self-centered or self-righteous. We need to empty the worldliness from our lives. In fact, Christ said, Matthew 5 verse 20, For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case 
enter into the kingdom of heaven. And so he meant, when he talks about poor, he meant abject poverty in that sense, right? Uh, we might think of a beggar who has absolutely nothing at all in this world. We might even think of Lazarus the beggar because he was clothed in rags. He was just thrown down at the gate of the rich man. He had to, he begged for crumbs that fell off of his table. He was so weak and sickly he couldn't knock the dogs out of his face. He had absolutely nothing in this life. So when we talk about poor, that's the kind of being poor that Jesus intended. And of course the spirit is the inner man, the eternal part of man. And uh, the poor in spirit, to be poor in spirit, to empty self of worldly desires in, in the, uh, the worldly sense, in an ungodly way, means that we recognize that we have a dependence on someone else for deliverance. That's what the poor in spirit the poor in spirit is not someone who is arrogant, that believes that they can attain whatever it is they need in this life on their own. And the comfort that comes along with uh, being poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There's no way we can enter the kingdom of heaven if we feel like we can do it on our own. We have to submit to God and be poor in spirit bring ourselves lowly in the sight of God and understand that we depend on Him. Now, Jesus then spoke of an inner quality that is very difficult at times. He said, blessed are they that mourn. Now, that is very much related to the poor in spirit. And as we examine these certain principles and qualities, we're going to recognize that the next one necessarily grows out of the previous one. So if we are poor in spirit, necessarily we will mourn. Of course, what kind of mourning are we talking about? The poor in spirit mourn because they realize that in some ways they've hurt God. And we might call that godly sorrow. And that's what Paul talked about, wasn't it? He said that godly sorrow, 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10, uh, worketh repentance or it leads one to repenting. So the poor in spirit sad that they've mistreated God, that they've been disobedient to God, will necessarily want to do something about that. Now this word, mourn, is the strongest word in the Greek language that intends grief. It's the grief associated with a person losing a loved one. It's the exact grief that Jacob presented when he thought that uh, Je uh, Joseph had been killed by wild animals, Genesis 37, verse 34. It is the kind of grief that uh, presents a contrite heart, someone who wants to do better. It is the feeling of sorrow that accompanies sin when we realize we have sinned, or when we recognize there is sin in our lives. And again, it is that godly sorrow which works repentance, which is absolutely necessary. For salvation, Acts 17, verse 30. What's the comfort of that? Well, when we repent and we mourn over our sins and we allow that to motivate us to repent, then we receive salvation. Jesus then brought the attention to the meek. We have to have the inner quality of being poor in spirit. We have to be able to mourn. And then he said, blessed are the meek. 
Now that has been greatly misunderstood by the world. What do most people hear when they hear the word meek? They hear the word weak, right? Most people look at Christians and they see a Christian as weak and timid, as spineless, as someone who allows a person to do whatever in the world they want to do to them. But that nothing could be further from the truth. That's not at all what meek means. That's an entirely different word. Instead, God praises the person who is mild in character, mild in personality, right? We might say that individual is even kill. He doesn't allow himself to become uh, outraged over the smallest of things, right? That person is not easily provoked. He is very patient. That is what meekness means. He does not possess vanity or haughtiness. And God praises those characteristics. But there's never been a place in the Bible where God praised the person for simply being weak, right? Now, we're not talking about being meek. We're not talking about surrendering to God. That's not a weakness. A weakness is not being able to stand up, right? Not having, we might say, a backbone in this world to stand up against those things that are wrong. We can become very angry when we are meek, but it is a righteous indignation. God becomes angry. The things that make God angry ought to make us angry. But God praises that person. But how does this meekness demonstrate itself? I think it's going to demonstrate itself in at least two ways. It's going to demonstrate itself in how we project that toward God, right? We will be submissive to God and the person who is weak will place himself or herself under God's control. Notice how Jesus described himself, Matthew 11 beginning with 29. He said, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus was meek. Do you remember if someone had to, if you had to give someone a one word that described Moses, what would that one word be? Well, he was the meekest man in the, in the world, wasn't he? He was the meekest man. That doesn't mean he was weak. We can say a lot about Moses. We certainly cannot say he's weak. And I believe Jesus certainly placed himself under the control of the Father, didn't he? We read about that. Praying in the garden, uh, Luke 22. Asking God to move the cup of death from his lips. And he said, but not my will, but thine be done. He was willing to go to the cross. A weak person wouldn't do that. But a meek person would. Second, I think meekness is demonstrated toward others. Paul made this statement, Galatians 6, verse 1. And we were just talking about that this few moments ago, I was with someone. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. We have to be meek when we are reaching out to people. We're trying to teach people, right? We must never go into a situation where we're trying to help someone or we're trying to teach someone the gospel or we're trying to encourage someone to uh, return to God or just simply to be faithful with the attitude of I know everything and you know nothing. I really don't know if there's anyone in the world that simply doesn't know anything, right? Now there are some people who know more about particular topics than others. But we can't have that uh, arrogant attitude. A person who has that is not poor in spirit. The person who has that does not mourn. 
the person who does that is not meek, right? Paul instructed Timothy on how to interact with people. We see that in 2 Timothy 2, beginning with verse 24. He told Timothy, And the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves, if God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. Now think about that statement. There, how many people in the world are have been caught in the snare of the devil? And, and how are we going to help that person if we go to them and, and we begin to explain to them how stupid they are for what they've done? How only an unintelligent person would believe that sort of thing? Well, number one, that's not how Christians behave, is it? And number two, I'm not going to listen to someone who approaches me that way. That's a complete turnoff, isn't it? We put up a wall. We don't want to interact with that individual any longer. So we have to be meek. Now, what's the, the comfort for being meek? Well, you inherit the world. You inherit the earth. But exactly what does that mean? There are many in the denominational world who intend that to mean that that is some kind of an, an eternal inheritance of this physical world. When in reality, that comfort is to be uh, enjoyed while living in this world. While we are alive, the meek will inherit the earth. Now that doesn't mean that we're going to take over the earth and we're going to own the earth and we're going to be in power. There's not enough of us to do that, right? We're the minority by a long shot. What that does mean is that we can live in this world and enjoy this world much better. We can enjoy the gifts of this life. We can live a peaceable life, right? Because we are uh, peaceable in nature. We want to be meek. We're not arrogant. And that tends to allow one to enjoy life much better. And we know that the Scripture does not contradict itself. And there's no way that this earth can be inherited eternally. Peter warned in 2 Peter 3.10, he said, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. That's not much of an inheritance, is it? You're not going to get to keep it. An inheritance is something that's given to you. And you can keep it as long as you want it, but you can get rid of it. You can, you can sell it or give it away or, or just simply not accept it. And so we understand that this comfort has to mean something else. And that means that we can live in this life and enjoy this life much better because of the characteristics found in the Christian. Now, as we read the preamble of the Christian Constitution, Jesus transitioned from uh, inner qualities to individual achievements that we must strive to gain. We have to be meek. We have to be poor in spirit. We have to be able to mourn. But we also have to have something else. We have to have some achievements. And the first one he mentioned was, Blessed are those that hunger and thirst after righteousness. Now what does that mean? They want to learn about righteousness. They hunger for it. They thirst for it. Now hunger is not normally a desirable 
uh, attribute that we want. None of us want to go around hungry all the time. and uh, uh, But we can understand the necessity of hunger, can't we? What if someone never became hungry? What if they never had that desire to eat? Well, their good health will quickly deteriorate, won't it? Someone who is sick, uh, one of the things that, lo- that leaves them pretty quickly is an appetite, right? They no longer feel that hunger. They don't want to eat anything. And what's that do to their health? Well, it's going to make that health deteriorate, isn't it? And so it's very important to understand that we need to, under, uh, to realize our hunger. When we think of a child or think of a baby, a good appetite translates to good health, doesn't it? We get scared to death if our child isn't eating or isn't drinking. Or something like that, right? We want to rush that little fellow off to the doctor and see what's going on. Because that's not normal, right? They need to have that hunger. Well, the same thing is true in the spiritual realm. The person who recognizes and realizes the emptiness that he has apart from Christ wants to learn, or at least should want to learn, all that he can about Christ. Learn what he wants, right? Hunger is one of the world's greatest motivators one of the world's greatest motivators and it ought to motivate the christian paul encouraged timothy study to show thyself approved unto god a workman that needeth not to be ashamed rightly dividing or handling properly the word of god second timothy two fifteen. what's the reward what's the comfort well the reward is understanding and knowing what god has in store for us guiding us through the scripture That's the reward, isn't it? Peter said and told us that the Bible had all things that pertain unto life in godliness, 2 Peter 1, 3. And so we ought to hunger for that and want to understand and know what God has in store for us. Well, the next necessary individual achievement that Jesus said uh, people needed to be able to enter into the kingdom of heaven is we need to learn to be merciful. We need to learn to be merciful. Sometimes people misunderstand mercy. Mercy goes way beyond feeling pity for someone. It's being actively compassionate towards someone, right? When uh, the people we love, or really it doesn't even have to be uh, someone we know, we can come into contact with strangers who are having a very difficult time. Something very bad is happening. And don't we feel something for that person? I can recall one time when I was at a hospital in Memphis and one of our brethren was dying from cancer and we were, we were in the uh, waiting room and waiting to go up and visit with him a little bit and there was uh, probably 15 or 20 of us in the waiting room and we'd said a prayer and a, and a woman came over to us and she was sitting over there by herself and she was going through the same thing. She had someone who was on their deathbed But she didn't have 15 or 20 people who loved her standing around her. And so she walked over to our group and she said, Would you all have a prayer for me? I said, Absolutely, we'll have a prayer for you. And you know, we felt something for her. We we need to be able to be merciful. Merciful. We need to be able to present that to people, right? Paul told those in Rome, Romans 12, 15, Rejoice with them who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. We need to have that feeling, right? When someone you love is hurting, don't we hurt too? Sure we do. When someone is 
rejoicing over something that's happy. You know, I love that. There's nothing I love more than faithful Christians to have something wonderful happen to them in their lives. And having mercy will present one's pursuit of righteousness from becoming self-righteousness. Those who love souls will extend that mercy to other people. The thing about God's religion in preaching and teaching, it's not about winning an argument. It's about taking advantage of an opportunity to teach someone about the mercy that God has extended to the world. If we don't show mercy, we won't receive mercy, will we? God, or uh, Paul demanded this, that he said, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he reap. If we sow unforgiveness, we'll reap unforgiveness. Jesus then, as he spoke this Sermon on the Mount, taught the necessity of learning to have a pure heart. Blessed are the pure in heart. And I don't believe the importance of a pure heart can ever be overemphasized. The inner person or the heart, and that's what the spiritual heart is, right? It's our mind. It's the inner person. It's the seat of our intellect. We reason with our hearts. We think with our hearts. We understand with our hearts. In His great sadness over Israel, Jesus said this, Matthew thirteen fifteen. He said, For this people's heart is waxed gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes have closed, lest at any time they should see with their eyes and hear with their hearts, and should understand with their heart, and should be converted, and I should heal them. We believe with our intellect. That's what Paul said, With the heart man believeth unto righteousness, Romans 10.10. 10. And so we have to guard our hearts. That's what Solomon said, guard our hearts. David said he had placed nothing wicked or sinful in front of his eyes because it affects our hearts, doesn't it? We need to guard our hearts. The pure heart wants to do what is best for God and for His church. The pure in heart will never seek out those things which contradict God's teachings. Christ talked about the inner qualities that every Christian ought to have. He talked about the individual achievements that we need to constantly be striving to, to gain in our lives. And then he spoke of the iniquitous of the world. There's some bad things in the world, aren't there? We're going to be exposed to that. We need to learn how to, how to handle that. One of the things that Jesus talked about in this preamble to the Christian Constitution is the fact of being peacemakers. He said, blessed are the peacemakers. Do you know what Jesus demanded? He demanded that Christians offer peace in the world and not problems. Now, we have to understand what that means. A lot of the world's going to believe that teaching the gospel is a problem. That's not what God's talking about. He's talking about the problems, the things that He sees as problems. We need to offer peace, not problems. You know who I think about a, a group that doesn't do that when I think about offering peace instead of problems? What about the Westboro Baptist Church? They haven't been in the news for a little while, but, but they're a hateful group of people. They're the ones who show up at the funeral of a fallen soldier and they'll chant and they'll scream how God's happy that person was killed in battle. And then they'll hold up signs and talk about how God hates homosexuals. Nothing could be further from the truth. That's not 
offering peace. That's offering problems, isn't it? God hates homosexuality, but He doesn't hate the sinner. He hates the sin, right? And so, I think of people like that. But again, we have we can't misunderstand that to mean that we bend when it comes to the doctrine of Christ. Now we are offering problems to the world. That's not peaceful, is it? Telling someone uh, a way in which they can get to heaven that's not found in the Bible, that's destructive. We need to offer peace. Paul demanded, if it be possible, Romans 12, verse 18, as much as life in you, live peaceably with all men. As much as we're able, live peaceably with all people. Sometimes you just can't live peaceably with people, can you? Sometimes they expect you to do things that that you simply are not going to do. And God does not expect us to live peaceably with those people. We have to stand up for that which is right. You know, we have to interact with people in the world who live in sin. And unless we live as peaceably with them as we are able, how can we ever demonstrate to them how Christ can change the lives of people? There have been some awfully wicked people in the world who's turned their lives over to God and become faithful. Many years ago, people were saying the 20th century was going to be the century of peace. Not only did they miss it on the 20th century, you can't describe the 21st century that way either. But as, as divided and as unpeaceful as our world is today, when Christ came to the world, it was even worse. It was a world of of a greater time of unrest. But that's exactly when the Prince of Peace came to the earth and taught the world to be peaceful. He gave a blessing to peacemakers. Now that is accomplished through the correct disposition in life, isn't it? We have to have the correct uh, disposition. We have to interact with people properly. Peter said, let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it, 1 Peter 3.11. And when we look at the history of mankind, that's exactly the way that God described Job to Satan, wasn't it? He asked, hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil. He avoids evil. Someone who is a peacemaker will avoid evil. Again, we go back to thinking of, of someone like the Westboro Baptist Church or a group like the Westboro Baptist Church. Are they seeking peace in this world? No, they're not, they're not getting away from evil. They're going toward it. Christians are peacemakers as much as they're able. But the truth of the matter is this. Even when we seek after peace, there will still be persecution. And Jesus said, blessed are they which are persecuted. How can we find a blessing in persecution? It's a blessing because when we're persecuted for Christ, we suffer unjustly at the hands of unbelievers for His sake. Our persecution is not the result of our own misbehavior or for for our being offensive. We're not persecuted for that. It's not because of our own foolishness. And our persecution is never justified by the world or justified by God, especially when we suffer for Christ. Peter said this, 1 Peter 4, beginning with 15. He said, But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or as an evildoer, 
or as a busybody in other men's matters. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on his behalf. When we read Paul's statement, Romans chapter 13, he talks about one of the roles, one of the aspects of government is to wield the sword. Well, he's talking about capital punishment. He said, who ought to fear, of course I'm paraphrasing, who ought to fear the government? Who ought to fear the sword? The wicked, the ungodly, those who break the laws of the land and, and uh, while breaking the laws of God as well. They ought to fear the government and the sword. Christ didn't enjoy His persecution because it was enjoyable. He enjoyed it because of what it did. It brought mercy and salvation to the world, all who would accept it. That's why, why He enjoyed that. That's the blessing in persecution, isn't it? We look at all these principles that are set forth, and I believe all the teachings of Jesus can be seen in some form in the Sermon on the Mount, the Christian Constitution, and from the preamble of that Constitution, the Beatitudes. As we look at each quality and we come to understand each comfort that comes with it, we begin to see the requirements and the characteristics that Christians must possess in this life. Each one and all are necessary to gain heaven. If you've never obeyed the gospel, we can't look forward to being in heaven together, can we? And that's what we want. Obey the gospel today through faith and repentance, confession, immersion in water, and faithful living. If you've done that, yet you become unfaithful, come back to God through prayer and confession of that sin, whether publicly or privately. If public, if that's necessary, come, we'll pray with you and for you, and God will forgive you. If that's not necessary, Repent, confess the fault to God, and He'll forgive you. And live a faithful Christian life. If you have need to answer the Lord's invitation, do that now as we stand and as we sing.